footsteps that we take many soon will follow in the choices that we make so let us then be faithful to be what we should be and leave a good example that they can clearly see be an example of the believers in word and in conduct be steadfast in love in faith and purity of life for those behind us let us stand within the gap and make a difference in their then be watching the weary day by day looking to encourage and to lead them in the way to run the race with patience on Jesus fix their eyes and challenge them with excellence that they might win the prize. Be an example of the believers in word and in conduct. Be steadfast in love, in faith, in purity of life for those behind us. Let us stand within the calf and make a difference in their lives. Be an example to follow Christ. Be the believers in word and in conduct be steadfast in faith in love in purity of life for those behind us let us stand within the calf and make a difference in their
about the uh, choir song, and sometimes being a mother can be like a fiery trial, but there was one last phrase in there that's really important. God makes no mistakes. When God chose you to be the mother of your children, God didn't make a mistake. He knew exactly what he was doing. There was something in your life that those kids needed, okay? Otherwise, he could have picked somebody else. He didn't, though. He picked you to be their mother. Kids, let's go ahead and be dismissed. Ages four years old through fourth grade. And while they're heading out, go and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. Now, when I was thinking about messages for Mother's Day, this one doesn't naturally just jump off the page. In fact, underneath the chapter title here, I, I give my chapters titles so I remember what they're about. I've got pastoral abuse as the chapter title for this chapter right here. Okay, but, but we're going to take this text and I want to apply it to a concept that I think a lot of mothers struggle with, a lot of women in general struggle with. Um, my mind automatically, in thinking about these things, went to the idea that many women struggle with feeling that they are less than others, or they have a constant desire to be better than somebody else. We call that comparison, right? They struggle with comparing themselves with other people. But this isn't just a lady's problem, although I think ladies struggle with it a lot of times more than men do, okay? But in fact, this message was originally intended to be part of my series on the home, because I think one area where people fall prey to comparison is in their marriages, they look at everybody else's marriages and think, why can't my husband be like that? Or why can't my wife get up and make me eggs and bacon at 4.30 in the morning every day before work like that wife does for her husband? And we get into this comparison game, and it, and it makes us critical. It makes us discontent with the life that God has given us. Okay? And so it, it is a struggle in our marriages, but it is a struggle especially that a lot of women face. Women often struggle with not feeling thin enough, right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but even the most thin women out there still struggle with feeling like they are not thin enough. We have eating disorders based on this, right? Um, sometimes women feel, they look at all the things that everybody else has, the nice houses, the, the vacations that everybody else gets to go on, and they think that they don't possess enough, okay? Or they scroll through Facebook, which if this is your struggle... You probably should just get off of Facebook, okay? So, but Facebook is the worst place you can be if you're struggling with comparison. But they scroll through Facebook and they see how excited and happy everybody seems to be on Facebook. And they think that they are not happy enough. Let me let you in on a tip. Facebook is curated information. People only show you the best. They don't show you the worst, okay? Unless they're proud of the worst, okay? So, like, here are my toenails that I clipped this morning, okay? So, people do that. People do it, okay? So, but then you scroll through Facebook and you think, I'm not happy enough, right? Okay? They look at other people's marriages, and they seem to be so happy, and they think their marriage isn't enough. They see other women in their new Mother's Day dress, and they think, they think if only I were pretty enough, right? Uh, they... they uh, like the tax collector in the temple, they may see other people's kids, and this is the other side of comparison here. They see other people's kids, and their kids are crazy, right? And they think, mine are better than that. That's comparison too, isn't it? Or they see a woman who snaps at her children and thinks, I would never treat my kids like that. That's the other side of comparison right there. 
and we can fall prey to comparison so easily. Comparison really is something that a lot of women thrive on because their image and their identity are found on how they measure up with other women in their, in their circles. But comparison, at its root, is what led Satan to fall. I know when we ask, why did Satan fall from heaven? We say, because of pride. Okay? But there was a root even further than pride. Isaiah 14, verse 14. Uh, Satan, talking here, says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Satan was an angel who was closer to God than any other angel. He was one of those archangels that, that was closest to God, and he saw God's glory day in and day out. And Satan's desire was to be like God. He compared himself with God, and he wanted that. He wanted to be like God. So when he, when he saw that, that motivated the pride in his heart, and he desired to be more than he was. He could not be content with where God had placed him. And so comparison led to the fall of Satan. And in our lives, comparison oftentimes leads to sin as well. Comparison has two forms. has the negative and it has the positive. And I don't mean positive as in good, okay? I mean like the negative side that causes us to be depressed and the positive side that causes us to be proud, okay? On the, uh, on the negative side, we compare ourselves with other people and we think that we are worse than other people, okay? This oftentimes leads to humiliation, to self-consciousness, to fears, to quitting, to depression, to jealousy, and to insecurity, because we don't measure up to everybody else. But on the flip side, there are people who never struggle with depression, right? Okay, have you ever met somebody like that? They come into a room and they, they have immediate control of everything because they are confident of their abilities and they, they are constantly bragging about themselves, okay? But they are still guilty of comparison because when they compare themselves to other people, they're better than everybody else. And this leads to pride. It leads to a self-focus. leads to perfectionism, judgmental criticism, arrogance, and an obsession with performance because I have to continue to be better than everybody else. And these, are all, these are all things that flow out of the root of comparison within our hearts. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, our text for today, okay, Paul had to deal with a group of false teachers who thrived on comparison. Their whole image, their whole reputation depended on comparing. Paul administered to the church of Corinth for about 20 months, and then he had to travel somewhere else, okay? But in the meantime, this church, we know, we know the church of Corinth, this church had many problems that arose, okay? Paul wrote them, first of all, it says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, he says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. So Paul ended up writing this church four different letters. We only have two of them in our Bible, okay? Before 1 Corinthians, Paul had written them. And in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul had written them. Paul writes them to, co to combat and to challenge them about the carnality and the sin that they had allowed into their churches. And between this first and the second letter to the Corinthians, there were men who had crept into the church who wanted to take over the church, and they were standing against Paul. They were trying to tear him down so that the Corinthians would not listen to him. And this, so the second, the second book of Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And in this text, it is a rebuttal of the attempt of the false teachers to destroy his reputation with the church. 
So Paul acknowledges the battle with comparison that he was fighting. And he says, for, he says, first of all, that it was not with other men, but ultimately it is a spiritual battle. Let's look at the first few verses here in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. It says, Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by meekness and gentleness of, of Christ, who in, present, who in presence am base among you, and being absent am bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul acknowledges here that his battle against the world is not a fleshly battle, it's a spiritual battle. This problem of comparison that's going to show up later on in this chapter is ultimately a spiritual battle designed by Satan to take you out of the fight. To make you either too discouraged to fight or too proud to recognize that you have problems that need to be dealt with. Satan wants to take you out. And the battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not about the other people and how we measure up to those other people. It is a spiritual battle. And the, battle, and the weapons that we use to fight this battle, according to verse 4, are not carnal. They are not physical weapons. We don't pull out a machine gun and shoot everybody that we don't compare well with, right? Okay, so, But they are, they are spiritual weapons. But Satan wants nothing more than to get you to live in defeat by living in comparison with other people. Whether you're proud or depressed, critical or jealous, obsessed or insecure, he has you living in defeat. So we're going we're gonna to skip over these first few chapters because really the solution to the problem is here. We'll come back to that. But let's turn to verse 7. And the first point we're going to look at is the wrong criteria for comparison. The problem that these people had is that they were comparing themselves on the wrong basis. They had the wrong criteria. Verse number seven says, do ye look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ's, let, him, let he, him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ's, even so are, even so we, sorry, even so are we Christ's. And then let's skip down to verse 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. The problem with comparison is that we oftentimes have the wrong criteria for our comparison. We are judging ourselves on the wrong basis. Jesus spoke of comparisons. He compared the Pharisee and the sinner. You remember the Pharisee and the, and the sinner in the, in the temple, the tax collector? He said, thank God that I am not like this man over here. And the sinner said what? God be merciful to me, a sinner. That was a comparison. Was Jesus wrong to make that comparison? Jesus compared the widow who gave her two mites with everybody else in the temple. Jesus said she gave more than everybody else. Okay? When confronted by Martha about Mary not helping her, Jesus made a comparison that Mary had chosen the better part. Okay? 
So comparison in and of itself is not wrong. Jesus wasn't saying that comparison is wrong as much as he is saying that the standard by which we compare ourselves is wrong. When we compare ourselves with others, our mentality is ultimately me-centered, okay? Oftentimes, we enter into a room, we might engage with conversation about other people, but the conversation always boomerangs back to us in some way. We posture and we protect ourselves, or we shrink and we hide away, but the focus is always about me. Now, in this text, he points out two wrong criteria for comparison. The first one was found in verse number seven. He says, do ye look on things after the outward appearance? These false teachers were tearing down Paul because according to them, in his letters, he was bold. He was strong. He was powerful in the way that he wrote. But when he was there physically in presence, Paul was weak and his speech was not very good. It was contemptible. It's kind of like reading a powerful speech by Abraham Lincoln. Can you think of any? The Emancipation Proclamation. You don't know it, Kate? Okay. So the Emancipation Proclamation, the powerful speech that Abraham Lincoln delivers, right? And other, other things that he said. But when you look back through history and you find descriptions of how Abraham Lincoln talked, he had a very high, nasally uh, pitched voice, okay? Very weak sounding. So you imagine James Earl Jones reading this document, but now you've got a guy going, and, the, and four score and 40 years ago. Okay, so, you know, that's kind of what's going on in Corinthians because Paul is, Paul is writing a very powerful letter to these people. But when he stands there in presence, he's weak and he has a hard time speaking before them. And these false leaders were trying to attack Paul by attacking his physical appearance. He says in verse number eight, for though I should boast somewhat more about of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be, sa I should not be ashamed, that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. And then this is what they were saying. For his letters, say they, these false teachers, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. And then Paul responds, let such an one, the one who's saying these things, Think this, that such as we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such will we be in dirt deed when we are present. Okay, that's a threat right there. Saying you're saying these things about us behind our back when we're, when we're face to face with you. The way we are in our letters, that's the way we're going to be when, we're, when we confront you, when we see you next. Okay, but Paul, Paul had physical issues, did he not? Paul, uh, we read about in, in one letter how he talks about how he had a thorn in the flesh, Okay. Most people believe this thorn in the flesh was in some way related to an eye infirmity. In fact, in another letter, I think it's Galatians, he ends by saying, you see how large a letter I have written unto you. Okay, literally it says, you see how large letters I have written unto you. Paul in his own handwriting wrote very large letters because of his eyesight issue. That, that is what most people assume about Paul, but he had this physical defect that made him stand out to other people. And when you looked at Paul, you didn't think here is a strong, powerful man. Uh, I think Paul, uh, I've heard somewhere, I don't know where, I probably should research this a little bit more, but uh, something about his name meant little or something like that, am I right? No, I've heard, I've heard people talk about him being little as well, okay? So, but Paul was not a giant. He, was not, he didn't have this big, booming voice. He didn't have a physical appearance that drew people to him. And so they judged him by 
a false standard by appearance. I think a lot of girls, women, our day, put a lot of stock on beauty, do they not? According to one survey, women spend an average of $8 a day worth on makeup. That's not, that doesn't mean you went to the store every day and spent $8, but when you add it all together and divide it by 365, you've spent $8 a day on makeup, okay? Now, some of us spend $8 a day on Chick-fil-A. No, I'm just using okay, so, you know. But there is a lot of stock that is placed into beauty by our world. And there's nothing wrong with beauty. Does God expect you to look frumpy and ugly and, and homely? No, he does not, okay? That's, that's not God's expectation. But becoming consumed with beauty is wrong. We call that what? We call it vanity, right? It is a sin. In high schools across our country... Girls are ostracized and shunned because they're not pretty enough. But beauty is only skin deep. I know it's a cliche, but it's truth. And beauty changes. You're not going to be the same tomorrow that you were today. You might be good looking now, but ugly later on in the future, okay? In fact, they say if you're a, a preteen and you have the perfect nose, when you get to be a high schooler, you're going to be disproportionate and ugly because your mo- nose moves over time, just to let you know, okay? So, okay? <laughs> but, but the future does not look good for any of us. We are not going to be beautiful the day before we die, most likely. What matters most, more than beauty on the outside, is who you are on the inside. Because that doesn't have to change. That is, that's what God values. That's what God delights in. They are judging according to outward appearance. And so beauty is oftentimes a standard that our women and our girls have fallen into prey into thinking this is what defines me. And it should not be the case. Socially awkward girls strive to be part of the in crowd and compare themselves to beauty magazines or even just the other girls that seem to have it all together, right? And so what generally happens in order to try to become part of the in crowd they let some things go, and usually the things they let go are being nice to other people, caring about other people. This type of comparison is a losing battle. There will always be somebody who is better than you, who is better looking than you, okay? I mean, even even Miss Universe, the next year there's going to be another Miss Universe, okay? And she's not going to be able to compare. Jesus described the Pharisees, do you remember this description, as whitewashed tombs, whited sepulchers. What's true about when you go into a cemetery, is it beautiful walking through a cemetery? I'm one of those weird morbid people that as a high schooler I used to walk around the cemetery by by our house and just relax because it's peaceful and beautiful trees, beautiful flowers, nice benches to sit on. (laughs) Okay, so, (laughs) but you go into 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 a cemetery and it's beautiful on the outside, but what's on the inside? What's inside those sepulchers? dead people's bones, right? That's what Jesus is saying. You're beautiful on the outside, but inside what really matters is you're full of dead men's bones. You are corrupt. You are abominable on the inside. You are rotten on the inside. So the first false criteria that they compared themselves with was appearance. The second one here is found in verse number 12. It says, for we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. What were these people doing? They were comparing themselves with other people. Comparing themselves with other people. 
you know, honestly, it's easy to find somebody that you're better than, isn't it? You want to make yourself feel good? Go look at the homeless people on the side of the street struggling with drugs and alcohol. That'll make you feel better about yourself if you compare yourself with them. If you want to feel bad about yourself, okay, this is me. Okay, you want to feel bad about yourself. You've got this addiction to depression. Yeah, there's always somebody that looks better than you. I mean, Roy looks better than me, okay? I like the hair, by the way. No, okay. So, no, there's always somebody who's going to look better than you, who's going to be better at something than you. I'm a preacher. I can compare myself to other preachers and think, wow, they know how to preach. They know how to preach the gospel and get the message of the, of the word of God ac across so well. And what's the end result? I'm just going to become depressed because I'm never going to be as good as those people are. You know, you can compare yourselves with other people. If you want to look better, you want to look worse. But ultimately, God says here in these, these verses, the last three words of verse 12 are not wise. It is foolish. You are a fool to compare yourself with other, other people. It's not the way that God thinks about people. People only show you what they want you to see, by the way. And for the most part, we don't really get to see the true person that's inside. Social media is curated media. media. It's what people want us to see about themselves. And comparing yourself to others is like a C student comparing himself to a D student and thinking they're doing pretty good, right? What truly matters is not how you measure up to other people, but how does God feel about you? I've learned a lesson that I've tried to take to heart as a preacher. There's a preacher that I heard, he said, said this phrase, there are no great men of God. There are only sinful men worshiping a great God. That changes our perspective. Every single one of us has problems. You, just, you might just have different ones than I do. And if I compare myself with, with uh, your life and the fact that you have more problems than I do from my perspective, but ignore all the problems that I do have, it's not wise. It's not the true standard. It's not, it's not what, I, what actually God thinks about the situation, but it makes myself look good. But you're just being a fool. It's what you're being when you compare yourself in this way. The next point is the foolishness of comparison. Verse 12 says that they are not wise. It's not the way that God thinks about comparison. And the end result will ultimately be negative. It'll end up in pride or you'll shrink back in depression. Let's turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. <clears throat> comparison with other people is not wise. It is not smart. It is not illogical. It is not the way that God thinks about things. In James chapter number three, God talks about two types of wisdom and he contrasts them. We have the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. There are some things that make sense to the world, right? It makes sense to the world to compare yourself with the CEO of Tesla, okay? Because that's the only way you're ever going to be able to strive to catch up with him, to be like him, right? That makes sense to the world. But it isn't the wisdom of God. It is the wisdom of the world. In verse number 13, uh, 13 here, it says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. 
and we'll continue reading the rest of those verses here. Words like envying, strife, glorying, right? Those are words of comparison. If I glory, it's because I think I compare better than you. If I envy, it's because I think I compare less than you and I want what you have. If there is strife, strife becomes because when I compare my way with your way, I think mine is better than your way, and it causes friction. And so all, all these words are comparison-type words in our relationships. But what does James say about this type of thinking? He says three things about it. First of all, it is earthly. It is earthly. This is the way the world thinks. It is worldly wisdom. Our world thrives on who is better than whom. Or what actress is prettier than, than the rest? And I think of uh, the fairy tale, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? That is the way this world thinks about things. But it is a downward cycle, a downward spiral away from God. And this thinking is pushed and motivated, ultimately here, the next thing, not only is it earthly, but it is sensual. It is motivated by our desires, our need to feel value. We, we have to feel value in and of ourselves. That is a fleshly desire. And so we seek to find that value, that affirmation, in other, in other means than we should be. Our value ultimately should be established by God. That's one, one of the conclusions we're going to come to here. But uh, our flesh wants to come out on top, wants to prove that we are something. But not only is that, not only is it earthly, it's worldly, it not only is fleshly, but it is devilish. It is an attack from Satan to keep us from pursuing God and from serving others. God wants you to get stuck in this cycle of comparing yourselves with other people. Or not God, Satan wants to get you stuck in this cycle of comparing yourselves with other people because it'll keep you from doing what you should do. But God's wisdom, verse number 17. But the wisdom that is from above, from God. First of all, it is pure. It's focused on true inward beauty and purity. It is peaceable. Peace promotes harmony, not fighting between people, right? It is gentle, so it isn't part of the ruthless rat race that tries to seek to destroy other people. It is easy to be entreated, meaning it's teachable, because ultimately it is humble. It is full of good mercy and good fruits. God's wisdom seeks to serve others. It is not me-focused, but it is others-focused. It is without partiality. If you're partial, that means you're excluding somebody from the group, does it not? Okay? And that means they didn't compare. They didn't meet your expectations, right? They aren't good enough for you. God's wisdom is not partial, and it is without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is focused on putting on a front so you will be accepted by the crowd. You have to, and, that, and that's ultimately where most of this ends up is in order to continue to compare, you have to keep up images, keep up appearances to get there. But really, you're struggling on the inside and nobody else sees it. Comparison is foolish because all it does is destroy. Now let's turn back to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. So we've seen what the, the wrong criteria are for comparison. Here's the right criteria, verses 13. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. 
For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reached not unto you. For we are come as far to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope. When your faith is increased, that we shall be enlarged by, by you according to our rule abundantly to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things, made ready to our hand. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And we'll read verse 18 in a second. So the first criteria we should be judging ourselves is by our obedience to God. What others think about you doesn't matter as much as what God thinks about you. The Bible uses the terms the fear of man and the fear of God. Who matters the most to you? Whose, whose opinion ultimately matters? Those friends that reject you for doing what's right, they're shallow. And they, they want you to be just like them. <clears throat> but God says, I will never forsake you nor leave you. They will leave you. They'll abandon you. When you don't do what they want you to do, they'll, they'll, they'll leave you. But God will not leave you or forsake you. Paul was focused on preaching the gospel where God had sent him. That's what he's saying here. He doesn't seek to do something outside or without measure, beyond the measure of what God has called him to do. Rather, God called him to preach the gospel to the Corinthians. So Paul is saying, this is our boast. We did that which God told us to do. We preached the gospel to you, Corinthians. And then he says, verse 15, we didn't boast of things without our measure, on the outside of what God has called us to do. That's, we're not bragging about that. That is of other men's labors. These false teachers, they had come in, they had taken over the church of Corinth, and they were trying to claim everything that, that Paul had established, that Paul had laid the foundation for, and they wanted the glory. But Paul says, you are our labor. We were obedient to God, and that is something worth boasting over. Because we are obedient, we care about what God says about the situation, okay? That is our boast. But then in verse number 18, the, the second criteria. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. So not only is our obedience to God what should ultimately matter, but also our acceptance with God. What is God's opinion of us as his people? That should matter the, the most to us. What does God think about us? He is quoting Jeremiah 9, verse 24 in this passage here, um, which says, But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exerciseth loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. If we're going to rejoice, we're going to be proud, we're going to be, we're going to uh, glory. Glorying in the fact that we know God. We have a personal relationship with God. And in having that relationship, I am accepted. Hebrew uses the phrase, accepted in the beloved. Verse 17, the person who is approved is the one who God commends and puts his, stand on, uh, puts his stamp of approval on. That is ultimately what matters. My relationship with God and my obedience to him. Notice how this shifts things though, okay? Comparison in the wrong sense was me-focused. This is, the criteria here are a God-focused life. I change my focus, my perspective, and we'll talk about that in a second here. Okay, that, that's, that's going to be a key. Let's turn back to verses 4 through 6 of, cha of chapter number 10 here. 
So what's the solution? You find yourself comparing yourselves constantly with other people. Sometimes you're proud because you think you're better than them. Sometimes you're depressed because you think you fail and you're miserable and you, and you, you just can't measure up to everybody else's standards. Verse 4 tells us that our battle is not to climb up the ladder and become more acceptable, but our battle is a spiritual battle. Comparison is a battle of the mind and of the heart. In verse number 4, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Comparison is one of those strongholds. It's one of those sins that we indulge in that don't just go away because you came to an altar and prayed it away. They're embedded. They're difficult because they become part of who you are. But our weapons are mighty to the casting down of those strongholds. In verse 5, he says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Comparison, the sin of comparison is a sin of the mind. You give in to wrong thoughts. You give in to trains of thoughts that allow you to compare yourselves with other people. And here we are told to do what with those thoughts? We are to cast them down. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Say no. Refuse to give those trains of thoughts. Tear them down. Okay? Cast them down. But then he says, and to bring them into captivity, arrest them. Okay? Literally, I think one of the biggest pieces of help I could ever give you when you are struggling with a sin issue in the mind is learn to say no immediately. Literally, the thought, no, in your head to stop that train of thought. Okay? But cast it down and bring it into captivity, arrest it. And then what do you do with something that's been brought into captivity? You bring it to be judged. Here it says, um, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That thought, if it, is, if it is against God, it is an enemy of God, it is not what God would want you to think, you kill it. And you bring it into submission. You wrangle it into submission to God, to Christ, and the mind of Christ. Comparison is a deep struggle that embeds itself in our minds. And we oftentimes, in the moment when we just let our minds go, we'll give in to it. But we need to renew our minds. Think God's thoughts. Think Christ's thoughts about the situation. One thing I would challenge you with, if you are struggling with feeling like you are this horrible, wicked, um, forsaken type of person, even though you're trying to walk with the Lord, you've confessed your sins before God, if you compare yourself and you struggle with depression, one, one thing you should probably do is go and read through Ephesians 1 and 2. Ephesians 1 and 2, and then ask yourself this question, who does God say that I am, or what does God say about me in these first two chapters of Ephesians 1 and 2? I, I give you that approach because, honestly, it's, it's, it's part of that renewing process. We renew our minds by the washing of the word. The solution to comparison, to being beaten down by comparison, is to renew your mind by the word of God. So go back to scripture and ask yourself, how does God feel about me? How does God think about this situation? And here's a hint in those chapters. One of those things that is true about me and is true about every believer is that I am accepted in the beloved. My performance, how I measure up, will never make God love me more. It will not make me more accepted by God. 
My value has been established by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I have no value. I have no worth in and of myself. It is only because the value that God has put upon me because he gave his only begotten son to die for my sins. That is the value that God has, has, has valued me with. The value of, that would cause him to even give his only begotten son. The problem with comparison is that it's all about me. But God wants us to live our lives concerned with what he thinks and with how we can bless others with our lives. So what really matters is what does God think about you? Then go and serve other people in obedience to God. Ask yourself this, in what ways has God gifted me to help that person? How has God designed this person to be a help in my life spiritually? Rather than comparing yourself with them, change your focus. Both questions get our focus off of us and onto other people and God. Think of it like this, measuring cup, okay? A lot of us like to have, how many of you guys ever cook in the kitchen? You got your liquid measuring cup, okay? It's got little lines on it, okay? A lot of us live our lives with a measuring cup and we fill our water up in that cup and we want to go and say, okay, I've got four cups of water and you've only got two. I've got more water in my cup. Praise God, right? But honestly, when you start taking that, wa- that measuring cup and you start pouring out the water, does anybody care where, where the water is on the line anymore? <laughs> you're just pouring out the water because you're using it. You're using it to bless other people. So as soon as you start pouring out the water of your cup to meet the needs of others, no one's paying attention to how much water is in your cup anymore, okay? I have found that most people who are, sit- who are comparing are the ones who are sitting around, not doing anything, not ministering to other people, and they're not pouring their lives into other people. And so, honestly, if, th- if this is something that you struggle with, it's, a, it's going to be a battle. It is a stronghold. You're going to have to fight it. You're going to cast down those imaginations. You're going to have to bring them into captivity and then submit them to the thoughts of Christ. I've got a book out on the bookshelf I just put out there. It's called Comparison Girl by Shannon Popkin. She's a writer who contributes for Revive Our Hearts. But it is a, a book, basically a devotional or a small group Bible study. It's, the subtitle is Lessons from Jesus on me free living in a measure up world. We thrive on making ourselves look better. Or, some of us like me, get our emotional kicks from feeling less than everybody else, okay? So, but that's not how God wants us to live our lives. We are not to compare ourselves with other people, not to compare ourselves on, on appearances, but what does God think about me? Let's have a time of invitation this morning. Let's all stand, heads bowed, eyes closed. Women, as mothers, as ladies, there's a lot of pressure from the world to say, you don't don't match up. You're not good enough. That doesn't matter. What truly matters is what does God think about you. Like I said at at the beginning of the message, God chose you to be the mother of your kids. That means he knew you were the right one to do that job. Let's take some time, though, asking ourselves, who are we comparing ourselves with? Is, this, is it as the world's standards, or are they God's standards?
Michael, do you mind closing us in prayer this morning?